Okay, so we can get started. James chapter one, we'll start from verse one to verse four. And then. James, a born servant of God and of the Lord Jesus, and of the Lord Jesus Christ. To the 12 tribes which are scattered abroad, greetings. My brethren, count it all joy when you fall into various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. But let patience have its perfect work that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. Thank you, Anna. So like we said earlier, James begins by saying that he's a born servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. Now it's very important to point out here that because of the tone and the nature of this book, you know, how it very much mirrors um, the writings in the book of Proverbs, this book could very easily pass for an Old Testament book. It could very easily pass for a, for, for a Jewish writing. It could very easily pass for another Judaistic writing. But the very strong references to the Lordship of Jesus is what sets it very firmly as a Christian writing. And James described himself as a slave, a born servant of God. And the word there is, is um, doulos. And that means someone who does not have ownership of himself anymore. He has been bought with a price. That's what happened to slaves in those days. They were paid for, so they couldn't actually live out their own agenda per se, because a price was involved in their purchase. That's how he describes himself. And isn't it interesting, right? That, like we said earlier, he goes from brother of Jesus. You know, he could have, <laughs> he could have introduced himself as James, the younger brother of Jesus. But now he doesn't dare to make such mistake <clears throat> because the appearance of Jesus in his resurrection had settled it in his heart that this was the son of God. And he mentions Jesus in the same breath as God. Um, showing that he had caught that full revelation that the person who was his brother on earth was, was God himself in the flesh. And it's interesting how he went from brother to born servant. And this is the effect that the love of God is supposed to have on the heart of a believer. The love of God is supposed to compel a believer so much that he sees himself as a slave of Christ. When we gaze on the sufferings of Christ, on the suffering love of God, the enduring love of God, the persevering love of God. It's supposed to provoke a love in our hearts. And this point is very important if we're going to endure trials, as we're going to see subsequently. And like we said, the letter is written to the 12 tribes. So this is referring very clearly to the Jews, but not just to any Jews, to, to those who believe that Christ was the Messiah. So they are traditionally called Messianic Jews. At this point, they were not yet called Christians and because they, they were first called Christians in Antioch. And he was writing to the 12 tribes that are scattered abroad. And this scattering abroad is sort of just an emigration, you know. It's almost like someone in Nigeria decides to write a letter to all the Nigerians scattered abroad in Canada, in America, in different places. That's exactly what's going on here. And then he says, My brethren, Count it all joy when you fall into various trials. The old King James says, when you fall into diverse temptations. Now, one thing to point out here is that you're going to see this word trials and temptation used almost in interchangeably because 
Um, the root Greek word is the same. Is 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 pirasmos. That's the root Greek word, and it means to. It means both things actually, depending on the context in which you use it. It means both to examine something, to try to test it, but also to to tempt or to seduce in a sense. Um, so that's very important because when you read trials, temptations, they're not the same thing in scripture and they're not they're definitely not the same thing in this chapter. So he says to count it all joy when you fall into various temptations. And the first question I would like us to deliberate on tonight is what is there to be joyful about in trials, right? If you're, if you're going through one trial, what's there to rejoice about? Then how much more when you go through a diversity of trials? <laughs> like what that means is that multicolored trials, essentially trials on every side you turn in every area, what's there to to be joyful about. You know, maybe the reason why we're very quiet is that whenever trials come, our first reaction is to become despondent and perhaps to slip into self-pity um, and to essentially begin to unwind in our minds, you know, how everything has not worked out and how life is so unfair and so many things can go through our minds. But the apostle says that what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to reckon, you're supposed to um, evaluate the things you're going through and count them to be all joy. Well, if you read further down the line, you'll find that the reason that he gives for this is because he sees trials as a growing up situation or opportunity, if you like. And if we contrast it a little bit with physical growing up, right? Physical maturity, you'll find that physical maturity, physical growing up is not always easy. It's not always pleasant. <laughs> when you go from childhood where you're sucking your mother's breast to a more independent childhood, and then you become a teenager, you start dealing with diverse <laughs> trials in your body while you try to understand your, your sexual identity and, and you know why do I have all these organs? Who am I exactly? How do I fit into the world? And then you become like, like a young adult where you have to take care of your own finances, plan your own time, prepare your own food. Um, it's not a very pleasant experience, right? Because you're, you're being weaned off of, um, off of childhood, essentially, and even teenagehood into adulthood. And that process comes with its own fresh, fresh share of challenges. But one thing, however, is that you will not have it any other way, right? You would rather grow up because if you do not grow up, um, then you cannot really begin to enjoy the real pleasures of life. You know, um, imagine if it is your dream to fly a plane, for example. Nobody is going to let a child to fly a plane. Um, and that's how it is with spiritual growth as well. It's not an automatic process. It's a process that you have to be deliberate about. It's a process that requires learning. It's a process that requires discipline. It's a process that requires mastery, right? Um, and so what James is saying is that if you find yourself being exposed to a variety of challenges, what you're supposed to do is you're supposed to begin to take account and bring yourself to the place where you count it all joy as you're going through all of this. And I guess my next question would be, 
how are you supposed to count it all joy, right? What's supposed to make you look at your circumstances, look at your difficulties and count them as a joyful thing? Okay, we're very quiet on this topic. Are my questions too hard? No, I think it's because there's nothing really joyful in betrayals, so that's okay. for me anyway. <laughs> yeah. It's so, quite overwhelming sometimes. And so whenever I read this verse, I'm like, really? Joy? So <laughs> that's why I'm quiet. I just want to know what everyone else thinks. Yeah. Yeah. It makes sense. Joy is the last emotion that you want to feel when there's trial around your life, right? Um, yeah. do, you, do you want to say something, Anna? Yes, I do. Like, uh, okay, normally there's, there's this formula, like, um, it's, with, it's with joy that we draw from the wealth of salvation. So mm -hmm. there's this school of thought, like, if you're going through trials, if you want to come out of it quickly, just try and muster up joy. That's the way out. And just now mm -hmm. listening to the, the real reason we should have joy, how we should how that is is for our maturity when we look at those trials not just looking for a quick fix like by faking joy in that sense yeah. as if you can fake it to god just to get out of it exactly this is such an important point you just raised right because verse two is not an invitation to self-delusion right which is one of the things that puts a lot of people off christians because the one of the accusations we get is that we don't seem to take life seriously enough. And there's this sense of um, overly joyfulness sort of that we try to sometimes fake that looks very unnatural. So that's not what James is inviting us to. He's not inviting us to self-delusion. To count is to actually evaluate. It's an accounting term, right? It's inviting you to do the mathematics around it, to, to reckon it as a joyful thing not just to be joyful as a formula, like you said, and, but there's, and this teases the answer to my question, which is verse three, it says, knowing, there is, there is a knowing that's supposed to lead to this accounting, right? But your hand is up, Stephanie. Yeah, I just wanted to say I agree with, with Ene and, you know, the whole thing about um, Christians, some Christians being very, very, annoying when it comes to this verse like oh yeah something how terrible is happening oh yeah so what i'm joyful it's happening you know it's just i just see that yeah. i used to see such things as a scam but yeah but yeah. now as i'm trying to get the understanding so thank you mm -hmm. it's not a scam right i mean for many people it is but um, the reality behind it is not a scam james says that there's something you can know that can enable you not only endure trial, but can also enable you to, to be joyful in the midst of trial. I hope one thing we have seen is that um, the Christian life is not an easy life. It's not a life of ease. It is certainly a life of possibilities, for sure. There are many things that are possible with God that we celebrate and rejoice. But possibility is not equal to ease. There is opposition. Right. There, is, there is something at stake, which is your usefulness to God. 
And the moment you embrace that thing that is at stake, you're going to face opposition um, in the form of trials. But James is saying that there's something you need to know to enable you endure trials with joy, which is that the testing of your faith produces patience. And this, I won't ask this question, I'll just explain it, right? Because it's a popularly asked question, which is why does God permit suffering in this world? Right? I don't know if you've thought about this question. Well, if you've attempted to do evangelism in the Western world at all, you're going to come face to face with this question, right? Which is, which often goes like this. If God is all good, all loving and all powerful, why does he allow suffering? Or why does he allow evil in the world? Um, why, why has evil continued? And the question is not entirely baseless, right? Because if we read the testimony of scripture, we see that God is truly all powerful and all powerful means that he can snap his finger and the paralytic can rise, right? He can speak a word and the person that is sick is raised. He doesn't take, take him so long. He doesn't need to actually, he can reverse time. He can do all of that. So if, if he's as powerful as the scriptures say he is, and if he's also all loving, how come there's still suffering in my life, in your life, in this world, right? Why hasn't he done anything about it? And one thing you can see is that it's very clear that God doesn't think like this about the problem. Because if God said, thought that suffering was such a huge problem, he would have definitely eliminated it. But even Jesus, when he came upon the face of the earth, he didn't make his agenda to eliminate suffering or suffering. We read, for example, that he went to the pool of Bethesda and he healed one person and he left. And that's a pool that was riddled with all kinds of sick people. So it was very clear that he didn't come to withdraw suffering from this world. Well, my, my, my classic answer to that question of how can an all-loving, all-good God um, permit suffering, sort of, is that you need to add one more omni-attribute omni of God to that equation, and then the equation will make sense, which is that God is not only all-loving and all-powerful, right? He's also all-knowing. He's also all-knowing. And if you accept that God is all-knowing, you have to accept logically and simultaneously that you are not all-knowing. So the fact that it doesn't make sense to you doesn't mean that it doesn't make sense at all. This is so important. It's just that your knowledge is limited. And that's why James says that if you're going to endure trial, you're going to need to know that one of the reasons why God, there, there are several reasons in scripture why God enables suffering or allows suffering as it were. One of the reasons is that it is, it is on an assignment in our lives, right? Um, it says knowing that the testing of your faith produces patience. So it's important to realize that testing works for us and not against us. Right. This is when we come to verse 12, you're going to see that this is one of the differences between trial and temptation, that when you try someone or you test someone, you're, you're trying someone to prove them innocent, right? You're, you're trying someone, you're testing someone so that they can succeed. The reason you write exams in school is not so that you can fail, even though failure is a possibility, right? The reason you write exams is actually so that you can pass and be certified and become competent at something. And... And God's goal for you and I is Christ-likeness. And, and um, Christ-likeness actually in this human flesh requires that we learn of Christ, that we, that we repent, that we change our minds about so many things, that we walk away from so many things. 
and walk into new things. And it is the fire of trial many times that, that, that makes us consider a different perspective, that makes us willing to surrender ourselves to process, that makes us willing to change when nothing else can work. So it has a, it has a use in God's hands. And this is one of the things God knows about trial, that he allows it. And it's important, right? Because just in case you see this trial around your life, meaning that there's something that is like a cross or like a burden that is not perfect. It's an opportunity for your training in righteousness. It's an opportunity for your training. God wants to make your faith precious. You know, your faith is lip service until it goes through the fire. And that's why in First Peter 1 verse 7, Peter said to them, you know, don't be surprised at the fiery trial, right, that we that's about to try you as though something strange was happening to you. It says your faith is more precious than gold. And because of how precious that faith is, it needs to be tested so that it can be even more precious. In Revelation chapter three, Jesus said to the Laodicean church, you say you are rich, but in my books, you are naked, you are blind, you are wretched, you're miserable. I counsel you, I counsel you, buy of me gold tried in the fire because that is truly what makes you rich in faith. The faith that has gone through testing is the faith that can stand, is the faith that God can trust, is the faith that God can release to bring healing and deliverance to other people. And it says that the most important skill you're going to need in the season of trial is a skill of patience, right? It means that if you wake up tomorrow and you notice that something changes and a season, of trial has opened because of that thing that changed, maybe at work, in your finances, in your health, or whatever. If you're going to successfully walk through that season, the first garment you're going to have to wear is the garment of patience. Right? Um, look at what it says in verse four. So in verse two, it tells you to count it or joy. In verse three, it tells you that the basis for your counting should be knowing that, that suffering is never for nothing, it should never be wasted. But then after you have known, the third thing you have to do is says, let patience, let patience, allow, allow yourself to go through that process. Um, let there be a surrender to the season that God has put you in. You know, there are usually one of two reactions that we have to trial. When God puts us in what looks like a tight spot, we can run away from trial, or from suffering, or from difficulty. You know, we can say, I'm not doing it again, and we go. That's actually one of the most popular ways that we, we face trial. Um, and the thing is that there are many people who cannot run away from trial, right? For example, if you look at the Ukraine, of the Ukraine right now, there are many people who cannot leave, even though they want to leave. And Nigeria, for example, there are many people who want to leave but cannot leave. And that's the second, that's what gives birth to the second response we usually have, right? To trial and suffering, which is that we, even though we cannot run away from it, we begin to resent it. Or we just resign and we become, we become passive, we become indifferent. We allow the suffering to shape our outlook towards life. And it's very easy for that to happen. But there's a third alternative, and this is the alternative that was and exemplified by Christ on the cross. The Bible says that because of the joy that was set before him, he endured the cross. And 
the way God dealt with suffering is the way he invites us to deal with it, which is that he embraced it, he received it. Right. That is what you and I must do when trial comes. We must embrace it. It says, let patience have our work in you. So, so patience is not only the it's not only the fruit of trial, it's also the mark of maturity. It is through patience that the program of God can work itself out fully. Without patience, you will truncate many things that God is doing. As you pray, you must be patient. As you fast, you must be patient. As you, as you war in the spirit, you must be patient because it is through patience that you're going to see the hand of God fully work out itself in your circumstance. In fact, I dare say that patience actually is the key to every other blessing, right? And that is why God will ensure that we, that we are grounded in this virtue of patience. It is the primary fruit of love. The first thing scriptures say about love is that love is patient. Love waits. Love suffers long. The believer who is patient can receive everything else from God. Um, the Bible says in Isaiah that I lay in Zion a stone, a stone of stumbling. Many will stumble at that stone, but anyone who believes indeed will not make haste. And it's important, right, for us to see that patience in the midst of trial is a choice. Spiritual growth, like we said, spiritual maturity is not automatic. When you're faced with a situation, you can run from it, you can resign from it, or you can embrace it as part of the maturing process. And that's what James encourages us to do. He says that you may be perfect and complete. The word perfect there is mature, mature. Um, and this is the primary goal of his writing this letter, actually, to lead us into that maturity where the, where the good works of God that he has prepared for us to do begin to find expression in our vessels. He says you can come to that place where you lack nothing because the things that Satan threw at you that were supposed to weaken your faith has ended up strengthening your faith and making your faith more precious to God. Okay. Any thoughts on this before we move on? Sorry, Joshua. This might be a very silly question. Mm -hmm. But when you say patience, as in, is it like we shouldn't, when we are facing trials, we shouldn't try to come out of it. Uh, we shouldn't try to look for solutions or we should just chill and just, you know, like that verse says, be still and know that I am God. Is that you know, the kind of thing you're talking about or I don't really okay. know how this, the patients, can you give an example of how this can work out? I think that it's a very valid question you have. And the best example is actually in the next few verses that we're about to read. Okay, because the perfect example that James uses is when you're asking God for something and it's not happening, right? So, um, the book of James is not encouraging passive Christianity at all. You know, Christianity that says, ah, Thor, if, it's, if that's how God wants it to happen like that, no. It's actually encouraging an active faith, a faith that is practical. But it's encouraging that faith in the most realistic form possible. It's, it's essentially telling you that there's no guarantee that when you start praying about something, it's going to move immediately. Right? And if you don't understand, this thing that perhaps God may need you to pray longer than you think is necessary because he wants to build your faith. He wants to build your character. And then you don't see that prayer as a burden. 
You don't give up on that prayer. You don't stop praying that prayer, right? The only thing that will enable you to endure like this is that you know that it's supposed to refine your faith. So what is it that you're trusting God for, right? For example, what is it that you're trusting God for? If, if, if you've been praying for it and it doesn't seem like it is changing, according to James, the only thing left to do is to keep praying about it. Or it could even be that God through the Holy Spirit has come into your spirit and has given you a clear answer. And this is not just make-believe. Like This is a clear word from God about what you're going through. You know, just like me, um, I can tell you this, right? In 2015, I was, I, I just come out of university and I was like, God, I, I don't want to be distracted with this whole relationship topic, you know, because I knew myself that it could very easily distract me. So there's so much that lies ahead of me. Can you just show me who I'm going to marry now and my, what your will is for my relationship so that um, I will not be distracted? I remember I was praying that prayer in church and God told me, you will not go into a relationship for the next five years of your life. This was um, 2015, January, or 2014, December, one of those. Yeah, 2014, December. You're not going to a relationship for the next five years. The Bible says, knowing this, that the testing of your faith produces patience. The question is, if God gives you such an answer, will you embrace it? Will you know that it is for your good? Or will you keep praying and sowing seed and expecting that he will change his mind. But I can tell you that in my case, it, it freed my heart. It freed my heart. It, when I've told some people this story, they are very um, worried about it, that they, they really don't want God to say the same thing to them. But um, for me, it freed my heart. It removed anxiety because I knew that, okay, I'm going to Ghana. I'm going to be there for maybe two years. God said, no relationship. So I'm going to meet people that I would like, <laughs> but there's no need to fast and pray. No, it was, a, it was a patient process. And God showed me the things that he was working on in my life, why he wanted that to be the case for those five years. But you need to know that the testing of your faith is supposed to purify it, supposed to make it precious. And it's a, it's a thing that will allow the blessing of God to come into your life in due season. Okay, does that help you, Stephanie? Yeah, thank you. Okay. So, Ene, can you read for us from verse 5 to verse 11? We'll probably stop at verse 11 for tonight. Okay. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God, who gives to all liberally and without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith, with no doubting, for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea, driven and tossed by the wind. For let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field he will pass away. For no sooner has the sun risen with a burning heat than it withers the grass, its flower falls, and its beautiful appearance perishes. So the rich man also, 
will fade away in his pursuits. Yeah, thank you, Enem. So if you're like me, you might be wondering, uh, what does wisdom or the lack of wisdom suddenly have to do with this topic of trials? Well, I must warn you that this is how the letter of James is. Yeah. Like I said, it's the book of, it's like the book of Proverbs, right? It, it jumps very quickly from one thing to another. And even though there is a thread actually that follows through, sometimes it can appear as though there is none. But like we've seen just now, wisdom is an essential tool that you need, right? To um, go through trial. Wisdom is the perspective of God. You need wisdom from God. In fact, that's the starting point of your ability to endure trial. Because you need to know if this thing is a trial or if it is an attack. Because if it's an attack, you don't need patience with an attack. You need to address the source and the origin of the attack. And you need to, you need to labor with God, right? Um, for example, when Jacob blessed Esau, um, and he gave him the second blessing and said, I don't have a first blessing for you. Your brother's taking it. He told him that you're going to serve your brother, but this thing is not meant to be permanent. The day you are restless and you become agitated, right? You're going to break off yourself from, from, from his yoke. Um, you're going to break off yourself from any kind of economic dependence on him. So your economic destiny is practically in your own hands. So... Poverty, for example, is not the kind of thing someone is supposed to fold himself, fold his hands in and say, okay, this is my trial. No. And that's why James says, if you lack wisdom, just in case you have a situation facing you and you need to know the perspective of God for this thing, should I keep pressing in the spirit? Should I keep praying in this thing? Or should I, in faith, move on to other prayer topics? He says, ask of God. And, he, and the way he describes God here is that um, if there's one thing God doesn't hold back from anyone, even if the person is even an unbeliever, as long as the person can ask for this thing, he says that thing is wisdom because wisdom is an acknowledgement of your finiteness. Remember, we says that we said that one of the reasons God allows trials is that He knows more than us. So it is an acknowledgement of our finiteness that we come to Him and say, "You know more than me. What is your perspective?" You know, without wisdom, friends, we are going to repeat trials because when you go through a season of trying, it, the, the proof that you mastered that season is that, you, is that you came out with wisdom from it, wisdom that can extinguish that season in your life if it tries to pop up again in the future or if somebody else comes around you with, with a similar challenge, wisdom that can ensure that they are not and put out of the way because of that situation. But if you don't, if you run away from the situation or if you resent the situation or if you don't make the most of the situation or if you don't even ask of God for wisdom in the situation, you might just be in a waiting game, you know, where you say, ah, time heals everything and then it will pass. And then suddenly Satan will stir up something similar and you will not have anything in your toolkit to defend yourself against the attacks of the enemy. And so he doesn't just tell us to count it all joy. He doesn't just, just tell us to know, right, the things that make for peace. He doesn't just tell us to let patience work. It, he tells us to proactively ask of God for wisdom, right? Um, and he tells us that God gives liberally to all men. 
and he says in verse six that however <laughs> this is where the patient's topic comes in again let him ask in faith with no doubting for he who doubts is like a wave of the sea driven and tossed by the wind for let not that man suppose that he will receive anything from the lord he's a double-minded man unstable in all his ways well one of the things you'll notice about this book of james is that most of what he's saying doesn't need ex explanation right He's saying that you're going to struggle in your work with God if you have one foot in the door and one foot out of the door. You know, if you're asking, but you're like, hmm, if it doesn't happen, there's plan B, right? Or maybe God doesn't want to heal me. The proof of faith is that you persevere. The proof of faith is that you are persistent. Friends, there are going to be seasons in our lives where God is going to train us through daily consistent prayer about a certain mountain before it moves. It is a necessary part of our training in righteousness because Jesus tells us that your father knows everything that you need, right? Before you ask him. So like naturally raises the question, why did, does the same person now say you need to ask? Hitherto you have not received because you have not asked. One of the reasons why God will have us ask is that asking God is like enrolling in his school of faith. Asking God is like enrolling in his school of process. God would have us grow in faith. He will have us mature in faith. And you will never get the opportunity to grow in faith until you ask. Um, and that's why he ends up making a contrast between the rich and the poor here. Because one of the hindrances to godliness is actually gain or wealth. That's why Jesus said it would be very hard for the rich to enter into the kingdom of heaven because godliness means that God is your reference point, right? For everything. But having riches and wealth means that <laughs> for many things, you may not ask God about it. If somebody falls sick in your house, you can take the person to the most expensive clinic possible. And it's only when it's a life and death situation that you now remember God in all of it. And it is wealth, something that's supposed to be a blessing that has made you like that, right? Um, but God will have us ask, friends, so that we can be introduced to his school of faith. You see, if you take a particular, if God says to you, I want you to pray this prayer point every day for 50 days, for example, do you realize that if you if you pray that prayer every day for 50 days, it's very unlikely that you're going to repeat the same thing every day. There's going to be fresh inspiration from heaven for each time that you ask. You're going to notice different dimensions of the thing that you need to hit with prayer. That's why Paul concluded Ephesians 6 by saying that in warfare, you need to pray with all manner of prayer and all supplication for all the saints at all times. Um, and from verse 9 to verse 11, he contrasts the rich and the poor. It says that, let the lowly brother glory in his exaltation, but the rich in his humiliation, because as a flower of the field, he passes away. You know, you're probably like me, you don't know what's going on here. Why is he suddenly talking about the rich and the poor? But it's very clear that the context is still the context of trial, meaning that whatever your lot is, if you're on the poor side, Use it as an opportunity to, to enroll in the school of faith. <laughs> That's essentially what he's saying. 
I mean, this is not easy for you to see or for you to understand, right? Use it as an opportunity to look away from your current circumstance and press into a hope that is beyond the circumstances. Just in case your current circumstance is also a circumstance of, of, of richness and wealth, right? Don't become deceived by that, but instead have a perspective that enables you to still put your gaze on God. Have a perspective about your riches, about life, that enables you to still hold on to God, to still enroll in God's school of faith, because your faith, the faith you develop through processing God, is more precious, is more durable than any riches you would have on this side of eternity. Now, in verse one of this chapter, um, James said he's writing this letter to the Jews scattered across the world. And I just wanted to give the context there that there were two scattering of the Jews historically in scripture. The first one was the Babylonian captivity where they were taken away from the promised land as Jeremiah pro um, and prophesied so that the land could rest for 70 years um, which led into the book of Daniel. So that one was because of um, um, exile or sin and disobedience. But this second um, scattering of the Jews from the Holy Land was actually um, occasioned by the, by the globalization, if you like, of the Roman Empire. So the Roman Empire was in charge closer to the time Jesus was born. They had built roads that connected all the major Roman cities to each other. So it was possible to essentially leave Jerusalem in search of better pastures. And the Jews that left Jerusalem, just like most of the Nigerians that left Nigeria, went in search of better pastures. So naturally, it turned out well for a lot of them who were rich. And naturally, it turned out not so well for those who were not, who didn't make it in business, as it were. And so throughout this letter, you're going to notice that there is that divide between rich and poor because it was a practical experience um, for these Jews. But the point of these first 11 verses, friends, is that your faith is precious. My faith is precious. And it is precious enough that God takes the risk of allowing us to go through trial because testing in the life of a believer is not supposed to be for nothing. Testing is not supposed to work against you if you are able to surrender to it and embrace it and say, okay, I didn't want this thing, but now it has come. It's not going to make an unbeliever out of me, but it's going to, I'm going to let it refine my faith. You know, for a lot of people, COVID-19 was a season of drifting away from God and into their flesh. But for other people, it was a time of drinking. What was supposed to be, what was supposed to be a, a fierce trial turned into a moment of feeling that has refined the faith of many. And that's my prayer, that God will lead us to a faith that is practical, to a, to a faith that is dogged, to a faith that is resilient. Yes, that he will fill us with wisdom on every side and that um, our faith will produce our expectations in the name of Jesus. Amen. Amen. Okay. We're going to pray and close for tonight.